Talking Books on Newsong 106 to 108. Nabokov has a quotation. Uh, he says that the worst thing about these dictatorships is how they keep their citizens hostage by the strings of their heart. And that is how I felt when I left Iran. I knew that I might not never ever see them again. And my parents knew that they might never see us again. But they wanted us to go because of us and our children. And so time and time again, I returned to when they died and we weren't there. So they never died. Each time I imagined them and I tried to imagine what happened, what, why wasn't I there at the last moments. And um, the feeling of guilt, even though guilt might not have been mine, will never go away. I, I, I don't try to use fiction or I wrote about them in my memoirs, things I've been silent about, but fiction is not aspirin. It doesn't comfort you, but it makes you confront your grief. And um, almost every day I confront that grief, leaving Iran leaving my parents, leaving the country that I loved and I will always love. What is the price for courage? And should fiction always strive to be subversive? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, in tonight's show, we're going to shake things up a bit and meet with two bold and courageous voices in contemporary fiction. Iranian writer Azar Nafisi talks to me about the place of literature in an enlightened society and how reading nourishes empathy and friendship. And Publish and Be Damned was the 1989 fatwa against British Indian novelist Salman Rushdie, the opening shot in The Culture War on Freedom. Shari Deckard, Joel Cortini and Teresa Delacri discuss one of the most controversial books in recent years. This is a show about globalisation and politics, religion and understanding, ideas and the world of imagination. But first, does fiction help us understand each other? Every culture, says Azar Nafisi, has something to be ashamed of. But every culture also has the right to change, to challenge negative traditions and create new ones. Azar Nafisi is a best-selling author, teacher and cultural commentator, known to most through her best-selling memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books. Well, earlier this summer, I met up with the fearless Azar at the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Azar Nafisi. I was born in Tehran and now I live in Washington, D.C. I write and I teach. <laughs> The first book I wrote when I migrated to U.S. was called Reading Lolita in, in Tehran. And the last book I have written is called Republic of Imagination, which is about American fiction. As, our, as we were walking down to the interview, you said to me something very curious and wonderfully interesting. And it was a present in my lap. You said to me that you can't impose multiculturalism. Can you talk me through that? Multiculturalism should come to you naturally because you're curious about other people. You want to know about them. And it has to do something with our survival as human beings because as human beings, we need to understand not just ourselves, but ourselves through others. And we need to connect to others. So the best way 
to be multicultural is to allow a free exchange between different cultures. It starts with education, but not to, for example, in terms of a country where I come from, they say you should not criticize a specific religion, for example, because of the fact that, you know, they are weaker than us. First of all, that is very condescending. Multiculturalism means understanding that people all over, whether they're Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, or atheist, are basically human, and they share the best and the worst. And the best way to get under their skin is through the best that they have to offer, which is their literature, their music, their art, their history. That is how you become multicultural, not by edicts and by law. And through culture, we ask questions of ourselves and other people, whether it's in art, literature, music. Definitely. That is why culture, in the best sense of the word, is always, always subversive. Because stories or or a great piece of art or music, they all make you question not just the world, but question yourself. They all jolt you out of, you know, your complacency and make you look at things. It is like Alice in Wonderland, you know. Everything you see in the Wonderland of art and literature is made basically of the routine, mundane things we see around them, but we see them through the alternative eyes of imagination, through the alternative eyes of the other, and they gain more meaning. And so we ask ourselves about not just big questions about humanity, but also about every detail, because art is all about detail. Azar, you were in your late 20s at the time of the Iranian Revolution, and you were teaching, you were in a university, you built a life and career around literature, and you had a great love of American literature. What was that like with the regime of Ayatollah Khomeini, and how did that affect you and your voice? Well, with the regime of Ayatollah Khomeini, the first thing that they did, which had nothing to do really with religion, but using religion as an ideology, was that the first targets were women's rights, minority rights, and culture. So their focus was on the academia, and their focus was on humanities, in fact, because that is what was dangerous. You know, if you go into engineering, you are dangerous if you're politically against them, but, you know, uh, humanities by nature question authority. So teaching English literature at that time became a matter of controversy, became a matter of both the students and the faculty taking risks. And it was finding ways of making the students understand and making the students question their own prejudices, you know, without putting them in harm's way. But, you know, sometimes you are put in harm's way. Life is all about taking risks. But I realized how much I could reach out to them Mm -hmm. through teaching them the great Gatsby or Jane Austen's uh, Pride and Prejudice, how a new world, a new window opened up to them. And how long did it take before you lost your position in the department? I know that you put up opposition uh, to wearing a headscarf, that you spoke out against the government and that you also championed the needs to have liberal educational values in the department. Well, you know, at that time, people forget about history and and, and that is why they make it, turn it into something homogeneous. What people don't remember was that at that time, on every level in Inan, there were protests and protests are happening right now as we speak. And one of the most, 
amazing protests were by women who came out in hundreds of thousands when the Ayatollah Khomeini tried to make the veil mandatory and they were saying freedom is neither Eastern nor Western, freedom is global. You know, and acid was thrown into their faces by vigilantes and they were attacked, but they had to retract. That was the first time. The second time, they realized that they have to do it stage by stage. So they started making it mandatory at workplaces. And that was when uh, there was a meeting at the University of Tehran and my colleagues and I were objecting to many things, uh, to censorship, to authoritarian use of uh, religion. And, and I talked again about the veil. And, and my point was not whether veil is good or bad, mm-hmm. although people have a right to be discussing whether they believe in veil or not, but the fact that that should be the choice of the woman. And, and that, so what we were fighting, which many people in the West did not understand, and did not support was the fact that this is about freedom of choice. This is not about whether a tradition is bad or good. And the people in any country have a right to stand up against traditions which they find oppressive. I imagine then the distrust that went through the department and also the over the university and all workplaces across Tehran and all over mm. Iran because colleagues could no longer trust colleagues because mm. colleagues were spying on each other. And if you said anything that was could be yeah. misconstrued, you had a real problem. So did you have a real fear about trusting certain people or was everyone watching their backs? Well, you see, that is exactly the problem. And that's why I say that this is not really about mm. religion. This was about ideology. This is what they were doing in Soviet mm. Union. Mm. This is what they do in China. The whole point was not just colleague against colleague. In my own family, among those who all were Orthodox believers in Islam, there were divisions. And they were, you know, when when one of my cousins was killed by the regime, some in the family called my uncle and congratulated him on the killing of his son, saying that he deserved it. So, yes, it was, there were scars which were far worse than just being tortured. It was the question of humiliation. It was the question of putting people in places where they would betray those who used yeah. to be their loved ones. And, and worst of all, it is a betrayal of the self. And everybody is compromised. No, yeah, nobody's no, a winner no, in that situation. No. Nobody gets out alive. Sure, they don't. That was my point. The fact that nobody gets away with it, including the victims. Yeah. You know, because, like, for example, my grandmother, she never took off the veil all her life, but she hated what this regime was doing to us. She would cry and say, this is not true Islam. It won't flog girls in order for them to wear the veil because it has to be of choice. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it becomes an instrument of the state. So she was implicated, in a sense, and I was implicated because I never wore the veil. And every time I went into the street, I felt ashamed of myself because of the fact that I was forced to be someone I was not. Now, you set up a writing group in Tehran and you developed a best-selling memoir based on it. Can you describe the writing group, some of the women that oh. came to you and the books that you looked at? I know you're an Alice Monroe fan um, and yeah, I think you used to read Madame Bovary as far as I know, oh, did you? Oh, yes, we, we, we read all sorts mm. of books and, 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 and most of the books we read, the, the focus were women, but, mm. but you know that mm. I think that one of the amazing things about mm. novel, beginning with 18th century British novels, especially, is that at the core of every novel, there's a woman who becomes a subversive agent who says no to the dictates of her family and and the traditions of her society and says, I choose the man I want to live with. 
yeah. no matter what. So I wanted these girls to understand that every society at every time has had restrictions and repressions and people had to pay a price for it. But you become your own agent when you make a choice and when you pay the price. So we read Madame Bovary. We started with 1001 Nights, the mother of all stories, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is Shahrazad. Yes. And we went through uh, Madame Bovary, we went through Pride and Prejudice, we went through Lolita, and of course one of my most favorite of all writers and books mm. was Muriel Spark, oh, yeah. loitering with yeah. intent. I thought that all <laughs> yeah. these women in yeah. all these parts of Iran, they were protesting not by mm. coming into the streets only, they were protesting with their being. For mm. them the fight was not political but existential. So these young girls coming into the the streets wearing their weapons of mass destruction like their lipstick or, or you know not wearing their hijab their veil properly the regime could not put all of them in jail yeah. they would be flogged and, and jailed they come back and do it again until the regime had to retreat rather than they listening and obeying authority and you eventually left Tehran in 1997 and you moved to Washington DC how difficult was it leaving those women in your book club? What was that like? Oh, everything was difficult. Leaving them, leaving my home, leaving my parents. You know, there's certain things in exile that you can't even articulate, like leaving when every morning I would wake up and open the window to the view of the mountains, snow-capped mountains of Tehran, the way the light was playing on mm. the leaves. You miss everything. And with the girls, there was almost a sense of betrayal, as if I took them to a world and, and we lived in this world world and then I left them and I had the choice to yeah. leave them while many of them didn't at that time. It's almost allowing yourself to fall in love and then walking away from that love isn't it? Well it felt like that but the point was that at some point it had to had end to and, and, and at some point the good thing was not just that they learned something mm. and they became more sure of what they wanted. I learned something. Mm. Through that class I also became surer and surer that what I wanted in life more than anything else to give voice to the things that I couldn't give voice to. And that was one reason I left. But for them, they were amazing. Mm. I mean, each of them almost did what they wanted mm. to do. And when they read the memoir, what did they say back to you? Well, you know, I don't know the reactions of okay. all of them, but with some of them, like with Mana, or the girl, mm, yeah. in my, I call her Mana, I had brought her there, you know, to give conferences or mm. talks, so we talked about mm. it. Actually, we chose the names together, mm. and, and that is why I ended with her. With Yossi, we talked, and they always talked that how strange it was to become characters mm. in a book, but... I don't know if all of them were would be mm. that much open with me if they had criticism of yeah. it. You know, that is the difficulty sometimes that um, I hope they will tell me. And, and, and some of them we have lost touch with, mm. so I don't know how they feel yeah. about it. Now, Azar, I have to ask you something. It's something that you said a couple of years ago that I thought was really interesting, and I'm wondering how it sits with you today. You said once that fiction confronts a great many things that we cannot fully confront in real life, and that in ways that you found your voice and your connection to people through literature. Well, you know, reality by necessity is full of restrictions. Mm -hmm. We're restricted by where we're born, what language mm -hmm. we speak, what gender we are, what race even mm -hmm. we are. Now, it is only through imagination that you can, based on the reality of what you have, you can almost predict things that have not happened yet. You know, in fiction, by nature, you have to be democratic mm. because a great writer, in order to convince you as a reader, she has to give voice to everyone, even the villain. Now, in real life, 
For example, when I was writing Reading Lolita in Tehran, I had a lot of bitterness against um, the regime or uh, some of the students who belong to the Islamic Students Associations and the laws they imposed on us. But when I was writing about them, I found their vulnerabilities. I found the points that I had missed. I realized that I was not the kind of victim that when I was there, I felt myself to be. I felt my own power. And, and these were the things that I would not have discovered except through writing about them and articulating mm-hmm. them. And, and so fiction goes to places mm-hmm. where in reality you don't have the power to go to. Mm-hmm. And that is why we need to imagine. And some fictional characters, whether it's Huckleberry Finn yes. or if it's Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, whatever that character, male or female, they can empower us in some ways yes. or they can show us the road and the choices that we may need to take in yes. our lives, can't and, they? And, you know, I always say that through reading, you find strangers whom you've never met before mm-hmm. and through what you share, you become intimate strangers. Mm-hmm. Because Huck Finn, I mean, you know, there's this boy who lived thousands of miles away from us in Iran who who spoke a different language, who, you know, belonged to a completely different culture. And yet, through reading him, we discovered that we shared something very deeply human. And that was the fact that the worst sin in fiction and in Huckleberry Finn is blindness. You can be a very decent and loving person, mm. but not see other people, mm. not feel the way other people mm. feel. And in that book, the racism that becomes the most violent thing that American society has experienced is because of blindness, yeah. refusal mm. to see the other, and fiction opens our eyes to the other. But there are so many messages in that book. Yes. and the power of individualism and the importance of individualism, I think it's what really transcends, isn't it? Yes, and the kind of individualism that Huck Finn talks to us Mm. about is very different Mm. from the kind of individualism Mm. that politicians right now Mm. in in US Mm. are telling Mm. us about. It is not about this is a dog-eat-dog world Mm. and each person for his own. Mm. Huckleberry Finn is an independent-minded little Mm. kid. Everything he's being told, he has big thinks Mm. about it and he reflects on them. And what he hates is what is most dangerous in a democratic society, be it Ireland or, or United States. And that is conformity, complacency. And so that sort of individualism that Huck presents to us is questioning yourself and changing and changing through connecting to others. Huck becomes himself when Jim sees him again. You know, he pretends to be dead. And then Jim is the first person who sees him. And Jim becomes the moral compass of the novel. Through connecting to Jim, Huck finds both the evil in himself and the desire to suppress that evil, to confront that evil. So individualism is not just about me doing whatever I want to. Individualism is about growing up Mm. through interaction with others and and thinking independently. And as readers, there's a developed collective moral consciousness there, isn't there? Because we all engage in this. We all look at Hook and what he's grappling with and what he's learning and how he is defying norms and conventions and being himself. Exactly. That is why in in Republic of Imagination, I talk about the fact that the American novel, the great fiction Mm. in America, is the moral guardian Mm. of American society. Mm. It reminds them that the American dream is not making about money, money, money all Mm. the time. It is about an idea. It's about paying for a dream. It Mm. was built on an idea. And the dreams are about the values, not the big houses and the fancy cars. Yes, And, and money becomes a means 
yeah. not an, an end in itself. Mm. Well, you, you know, in this mm. country, mm. Ireland, and I, I shouldn't be saying this to you because I want to <laughs> say this in my talk, but the first time I came in Dublin, which was in 2013 through the marvelous art for amnesty, I thought, oh my God, this is a city where monuments are built of words. Mm. You know, this is a city where everywhere I look, even those who had not lived, the Irish writers who had not lived in Dublin or were born in Dublin, I hear voices, you know, there's Swift, there's Stan, there's Yeats, there's Bishop, there's Joyce, you know, and it's a country that is connected to its soul mm. because it builds a tapestry created by a Czech artist in its airport to its great poet, you know. That is how imagination becomes part of your real life. Now, you've picked five classics in American literature. I know Dorothy figures in a big way. Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. I always mention in my book that how um, the first story I heard about America in this imaginary map I had of America was Wizard of Oz. And I realized that America is, has a place called Kansas, at the heart of which there is a land called Oz, you know, and, and, and the whole idea of Dorothy going to Oz but wanting to come back home for me was this metaphor for the fact that we need, no matter where we live, the most mundane places, a place which is all desert, at the heart of it is the wonderland, uh, your backyard. There's this portable world of imagination, and you travel to the world of imagination not to escape, but to come back to reality and live a richer life and, and see the world through the alternative eyes of all those creatures you saw in the wonderland. Now, as are you picked Sinclair Lewis um, Babbitt? I think it was written in, uh, the book was written in the early 1920s. Yes. It was written, it was published in 1922, and it predicts American society as it is today. Honest to God, you read some of the conversations and you think so-and-so candidate from Republican or Democratic Party has said it. And it is based on this whole idea of America that is arrogant because of its ignorance. Babbitt is anti-Huck, mm. and we have both of them mm. in America. And, you know, Babbitt is a man who has no central core, who depends all on the images on the outside, on the whole materialistic side of American society. And it is America's newness, lack of history, lack of any respect for culture because they have no layers, you know. I'm interested, when you published the book last year, how did it go down in America? Because you've picked these five books and it's almost like the classic characters. How how did Americans take an Iranian woman? (laughs) So you're an outsider by being an Iranian and you're coming in and you're lashing through American literature and then saying what this presents to state of play today. How do they take it? Well, you know, that is multiculturalism as its best because as I mentioned in my book, I say when you love a country and you want to become a citizen, when you take a choice, it is love is always with complaints. And I started becoming an American citizen when I started complaining about it, you know, because you want it to be good. Mm. You know, and, and, and the whole point of these novels was... You know, Baldwin says, I love America more than any other country in the world, and that is why I criticize it. So it was a love letter. It was a love letter that threw the best that America had to offer, which was its great works of fiction. I wanted to let them know the blind spots. I wanted to let them know the dangers, especially in this crisis, at a time when America is becoming more and more complacent, more and more conformist, and the divisions in the society are becoming more and more ideal logical and and you know 
I found my readers. Mm. And I loved it this time, especially mm. because they're all from among people whom I love, which are the booksellers and the librarians and, 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 and the teachers, basically readers. And readers come from all walks of life. Now, Azhar, when you left Iran in 1997, both your parents were quite elderly at the time. And I know your mum was very, really inspired and encouraged you to to speak out and to explain Iran to a broader public. How difficult was it knowing that you possibly would never be able to return? And whether it was to return to see your parents on their final journey or to support your siblings? Nabokov has a quotation. Uh, He says that the worst thing about these dictatorships is how they keep their citizens hostage by the strings of their heart. And that is how I felt when I left Iran. I knew that I might not ever see them again. And my parents knew that they might never see us again. But they wanted us to go because of us and our children. And so time and time again, I returned to when they died and we weren't there. So they never die. Each time I imagined them and I tried to imagine what happened. What? Why wasn't I there at the last moments? And... Um, the feeling of guilt, even though guilt might not have been mine, will never go away. I, I, I don't try to use fiction or I wrote about them in my memoirs, things I've been silent about. But fiction is not aspirin. It doesn't comfort you, but it makes you confront your grief. And um, almost every day I confront that grief, leaving Iran, leaving my parents, leaving the country that I loved and I will always love. And that was the Tehran-born writer and teacher, Azar Nafisi. The Republic of Imagination, American Three Books, is published by Viking and retails at about 15 euros. OK, hang in there. Let's break to some music. And afterwards, it's Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses. And we're going to discuss whether this daring book would get published today.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. When you were writing Sonic Verses, were you aware mm. that it would be at least provocative? Well, I mean, I thought probably some sort of conservative, orthodox, religious people wouldn't like it. You know? But I mean, they hadn't liked anything else I'd written either. So, I mean, that, so that wasn't really a factor. I mean, I think, you know, my view was and is that nothing's off limits. You know, that, that when you start writing about the stuff which is the central experience of your own life anyway, mm. you know, you can talk about whatever you want, you know, and you can talk about it in whatever way you want. I think the only way of living in a free society is to feel that you have the right to say stuff. Do you ever think, God, God Sam, you know, I did, I, maybe I did flat fan the flames? No, I'm sorry, I don't think that, mm. you know. I mean, you know, maybe I'm supposed to think that, but I don't think that. I mean, I, my view is that I did something, I mean, I'm very proud of that book, mm. you know, and I think it's maybe one of the best books I ever wrote. And for a long time, only the people who were annoyed about it, mostly without reading it, uh, got to say anything about it, and they got to sort of set the terms of the argument, you know, and I think now we're through that, and I'm allowed to talk about it as a work of art. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Now, what you've just been listening to there was British Indian novelist Salman Rushdie talking to the BBC's Will Comberts on the banning of his book, The Satanic Verses. In 1989, the Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, issued a fatwa calling for the death of Salman Rushdie following the publication of his novel, The Satanic Verses. This fatwa divided the Muslim world, igniting heated debates on multiculturalism, satire and the principle of freedom of expression. The Iranian government backed the fatwa against Rushdie until 1989. But did the banning of this controversial book just increase its notoriety? How did it insult Islam and has this book been misread? Well, earlier in the week, Sherry Deckard and Teresa de Locri from UCD's School of English Drama and Film and Joel Curti the author of Salman Rushdie, New Critical Insights and Place of the Sacred, The Rhetoric of the Satanic Verses Affair, joined me to discuss the job of fiction and one of its most playful, energetic and boldest voices. I asked Sheree about Rushdie's magical realist writing style and just how radical it is. Rushdie, in some ways, became very famous both for this book and for the book preceding it, uh, Midnight's Children, because he was the first writer who was from a South Asian background to employ magical realism in the novel to such an extent. And we think of magical realism as originating in Latin America um, with writers such as Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and it's famous for treating things which are supernatural or unreal as if they were totally real. So it narrates completely absurd events as if they could happen just in ordinary life. So famously, Satanic Verses begins with its two protagonists, Gavriel Farishta and Saladin Chamcha, falling from the sky into England. They've just crashed from an airport. So what's very interesting about the opening is how it completely treats this absurd scenario, the idea that anyone could survive falling miles out of, out of the sky and emerge in England. Um, it treats it as it's totally real. But it's also narrated in an extraordinary language. So it combines often these unreal or magical plot effects and extraordinary characters with really amazing kind of pyrotechnical language that's like a kind of fireworks. It's, it's fluid. Um, it's full of puns. It's full of references to uh, a host of a kind of modernist fictions, uh, everything from uh, 
uh, Joyce to Calvino, but also uh, tons of references to Hindu and Arabic and Urdu classical literature and weaves these all together in a really rich uh, kind of smorgasbord of language. I might just read out a little bit of the op- one of the opening paragraphs to give you a sense of this. So this is t- describing the moment when these two actors, Gabriel, who is a famous Bollywood movie actor um, who's actually based on a real-life character in India, and Saladin Chamcha, who's a radio and television actor. And this is the moment when the aircraft explodes and cracks in half, and they're plummeting down like these kind of two fallen angels. The aircraft cracked in half, a seed pod giving up its spores, an egg yielding its mystery. Two actors, prancing Gibriel and Buttony, pursued Mr. Saladin Chamcha, felt like titbits of tobacco from a broken old cigar. Above, behind, below them, in the void there hung reclining seats, stereophonic headsets, drinks trolleys, motion discomfort receptacles, disembarkation cards, duty-free video games, braided caps, paper cups, blankets, oxygen masks. And Sherry, I'm delighted that you read out there because he's so playful. His voice is so unbelievably energetic and vibrant. But having said that... Do you think a magical realist novel is a place to discuss your interpretation of religious events? Well, what's very interesting is throughout many different traditions of magical realist literature, both in Latin America, um, in the South Asian subcontinent, in indeed, say, the most recent fictions of the Nobel Prize winner Mo Yan, what you often see is a kind of satirical magical realism that uses the strategies of talking about the absurd or the surreal or the unreal in order to talk about realities that somehow can't be directly expressed in realist language. So I think it is an appropriate forum to explore, as this novel does, very complex issues of faith. How do we know what we believe in? Why do we believe it? These are questions that are being explored not just in the question of Islam in this book, actually. There's a very long discourse on American fundamentalist creationism. There's Hindu characters. There's Afro-Caribbean characters. So there's a variety of different explorations of belief in a variety of modes. Tressa, how good a storyteller is he? It's a very controversial novel. It's a very perplexing novel. novel. It's deeply imaginative. It's bold. But if we look at literary merits and just look at storytelling, undoubtedly the characters are remarkably interesting. But as a storyteller, how well does he do it in this book? I think that Satanic Verses is regarded as one of Rushdie's most accomplished novels. Um, And I think as a story, it works fantastically well, even though it's got these three intersecting narratives. The London section, which is set in contemporary London, and is traditionally read as being about migrancy and alienation, but it also could be read about Thatcherite politics and about the disenfranchisement of various migrant groups and about alienation. And then it switches into this mode where it's set in um, Jahiliya or Mecca. And then it switches into another mode where it's about Aisha, who's this um, incredibly charismatic kind of spiritual leader who guides lots of people to their deaths in the Arabian Sea. And that sounds quite complex, but what brings the novel together is the fact that, as you've noticed, it's very satirical, but it's very humorous. There are all these puns and wordplays and intertextual allusions that really keeps you on your feet as a reader and also Rushdie's trying to help you as a reader he wants to engage you so he makes sure that there are lots of um, kind of similar thematics the whole way through there are recurring characters so the character of Gabriel is an archangel in the Mecca section Aisha appears in you know as one of Muhammad's wives in the Jahiliya section then reappears as a prophet in a later section so there are all these kind of 
tips and tricks that he kind of brings in as a, you know, I guess sometimes he's considered a postmodernist writer, but he's trying to keep you engaged and he's giving you a roadmap of sorts. So not only are there the, like normal elements of plot and suspense and your interest in the characters and what's happening to them, they're undergoing these magical transformations of their bodies, they're falling in out of love, one of the characters perhaps is schizophrenic, they're finding their way back to India. So your interest in that is like, a, a, you know, just um, a very suspenseful kind of plot device in the first section, but you're also trying to see how the narrative links together. And it's not that Rushdie's trying to trick you. He wants you to put those pieces together. He wants you to see that there are very stories that perhaps resonate throughout the ages, that he's playing on the truthfulness or the fictionality, perhaps, of certain histories that we've been given throughout time as well. So that's why we have characters from the present reappearing in the past in these ways. Do you think it will be published today, though, given when we look at journalists and freedom of speech, the fact that you've had several journalists assassinated even in the last year. Do you think this book will be published today? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, that's a question I find very difficult to answer. Um, I think I was rereading today this, this section set in Jahiliya, which is the section that drew the most controversy for its fictional depiction of Muhammad. And I'm not entirely sure that that would be published today in the way that it's written because it has some very pointed satirical depictions of Muhammad and of that time and it's mediated through various other characters and it's it's meant to be fictional and you're seeing it through the guise of Baal who's a satirical poet and then Salmon who's a scribe and then there's this power struggle going on in Jahiliya between various factional leader, leaders and like the shark tribe and they they believe in polytheism whereas Muhammad believes in monotheism. And it's presented as kind of a historical, very secular um, kind of account of what it means to believe in um, a god or a multiple gods, right? But it is fiction and in that part that you're describing, it's also that's also fueled through a dream from mm-hmm. uh, from a man who's suffering maybe your mental health challenges as well. Exactly. And I think the thing to remember, going back to your original question, when the book initially drew the ire of um, the Ayatollah, um, there was a blasphemy trial in the UK a couple of years later. And the defence for Rushdie, I mean, what he argued was that, that this was a fictional narrative, it was a dream narrative and um, the various prosecutors who brought this case against Rushdie had missed the point which was that this is about writers, it's about it's about hist- how history becomes history and how fact becomes fact rather than fiction and how do we mediate it or how do we I guess fictionalise history, destabilise history as this major grand narrative when it's been mediated through Gabriel Farishta, who's the archangel, who's been presented as schizophrenic, and yet somehow all the protests against Rushdie and against the satanic verses completely missed that aspect of it. And in general, the people who protested against the book perhaps had, hadn't really read the book because it is about the fictionality of historical discourses, as you've noticed. Yeah, Joel, how would you describe the tone of the satanic verses? Well, I think it is very kind of satirical in, in that uh, also humoristic uh, it is also very serious in its philosophical approach to faith and uh, that kind of issues, and also the issue of love, which is kind of a love story in the end, even though it is uh, dystopian or that sort of uh, things go. But Joel, can I ask you though that, you know, Salman Rushdie has always defended his novel by saying that certain readers have misread what he has said. 
Do you think that argument is credible? Do you think it stands? It stands, yes. And uh, uh, as we had before, uh, many people who criticise the book haven't even read it, uh, and they say so. And uh, also those who defended Rushdie uh, said that they haven't read it, but they, they defend him all, uh, all the same. So it stands, yes. I wanted to say something a bit more about tone and also connect back to the question you asked Trasa about whether it be published today. There's, a, again, an interesting line in the opening. Rushdie's famous for kind of giving little keys to how to read his work, where... As the two characters are falling out of the sky, um, one tells the other that he needs to balance levity against gravity. Now, this is a kind of joke, the notion that if he sings a song and flaps his arms, he won't crash into the earth. But it's also a kind of key to understanding what levity means for Rushdie. It's not just humor. It's not just let's make fun of this. But it's kind of saying in the face of the gravity of the issues that these characters are going to face, um, the full force of, of the British state saying you're not allowed in England, the kind of alienation they experience in London, levity as this ability, this profoundly human ability to find pleasure in language, in music, in performance, in in comedy, not satire in a kind of mean-hearted, mean-spirited sort of way of just wanting to tear something down, but rather of understanding it more fully. And I think that's a really, that's key to understanding this book. And maybe in some ways what also distinguishes it, in my own personal opinion, although other people might have different views, from sometimes, say, caricatures of Muhammad that we've often seen in the cases as Charlie Hebdo or the Danish cartoons, which often there doesn't seem to be the deep interest that this book displays in actually interrogating a culture, its roots, its development what it means to live that experience for people along a whole spectrum. It's more about a perspective from the West of satirizing something in order to tear it down. Now, of course, there's a whole debate around the freedom of speech that that intersects with. But I think that this book comes from a profoundly different place and a profoundly different cultural knowledge so that no matter what you think of its politics, it, it has a different aim. Um, and it's very much engaged, I think, in trying to find the levity um, in these people's lives, not in some sort of cheap way of let's make fun of them, they're just comic caricatures, but rather what is profound, what is human, what is um, meaningful about them. And there's a really redemptive arc um, in particular for Saladin throughout the whole book where he has to learn to stop being so uptight from being a kind of mimic man just trying to look like an Englishman and actually embrace everything that's complex and human about himself. So do you think there's an argument to be said that if you read the entire book and see it on balance in terms of what he's done within the different stories within the book, within the different themes that then it all balances out? Or do you think that's a bit wishy-washy? Well, you certainly get a different perspective. I mean, sometimes what I think is interesting is that some of the things that I find actually more problematic in this book would be things like the depictions of the Afro-Caribbean community in Brixton and Southall in the book, or even the depiction of, like, say, the gender representations of women who mostly, you said the characters are fantastic, and indeed, particularly Gabriel and Farishta and, and Trasa mentioned Eshia, who's very compelling. But many of the women are just kind of, they're literally described as stone-cold um, goddesses or femme fatales who only exist to serve the interests of the men or to bear their children or not bear them. They're obsessed with childbearing. But yes, I would say that when you read this all the way through, you get a very different perspective than if you just excerpt aspects out. Joel, do you think that we will ever be able to reasonably discuss the satanic verses without going into the whole political debate on it? Do you think we can just ever just look at 
the sublime scenes that he develops, the beautiful visual pictures, the energy, the cadences and how it's written. Do you think we could ever just park all the politics and appreciate his voice as a writer? Technically, yes. And uh, there are people who try to do that um, in in analysis, but um, it is difficult in public uh, sphere not to bring in the the, uh, controversy. And uh, it's been so for 25 years now, and uh, it seems to be continuing. And what do you think has been his impact on writers today? Do you think that novel has done more damage than good? What would you what would you say to that? Um, it's very hard to s- calculate whether it's more this or that, but uh, there are people, even liberal thinkers, uh, who think it did damage, and uh, there are, say, religious people who think it was for the good. So it's not a very clear-cut line there, but um, from my perspective it's still a very remarkable work and uh, now 27 years after its publication I think uh, there's been more interest in in its literary value and all these elements that he brings in uh, that kind of are more uh, burning now uh, with all, all these fundamentalist movements not only Islamic but others as well. And Sherry, do you think that stands? Well, I think what's interesting about Satanic Verses is that the question of its influence is not just one of aesthetics. That is, how has it influenced later writers? Although certainly by putting magical realism, by putting modernist literary aesthetics of a particular variety on the front pages across the world, because one of the things that the controversy did was to make this one of the most famous novels in the Anglophone uh, world, certainly in the world of media. Um, People knew what it was, even if they hadn't read it. Um, It had huge, huge sales figures. Um, It transformed actually the way that uh, novels were marketed and it very much transformed kind of um, post-colonial literature and that Rushdie was already kind of lauded um, from Midnight's Children in particular um, and seen as a kind of uh, uh, a global icon of world literature. But this really catapulted in a way, the publishing industry into the age of kind of the world novel, the world novel bestseller. So I think it's had a lasting material and economic impact, one which is both, which which is kind of double-sided in that sometimes people felt that they had to write novels in the mode of Rushdie. Um, the critic Neil Lazarus kind of famously said in post-colonial studies, it sometimes seems like there's only one writer and that writer is Rushdie. Um, so some say, for example, South Asian writers in particular have said, well, what about all the the, the novelists who write in very different modes or who write in different languages, not in English, you know, who write in the many languages of the subcontinent. What about those fictions? Do those still get the same notoriety? Um, What about writers who don't want to be marketed in terms of their politics or their notoriety? Can we really actually just read things for their content? Has this fundamentally changed how novels are published? So there's a lot of questions revolving around the impact, both in terms of its literary influence and in terms of its, its kind of economic and political impact. And lastly, if you were to look at some of the famous books that have been banned through history and you were to, somebody asked you, oh, I want to look at some of those big, juicy, controversial books. Would this be one that you'd 
say would make the top three? I think in a way it would warrant a place in the top three and primarily for the reasons that Sheree has already established in that it marks a pretty critical time in the transition in post-colonial literature towards like a world literary marketplace when books are being marketed a very particular way, people are starting to write in a very certain vein, Rushdie's established that. So yeah, I, th- I think for many, many different reasons he would warrant a place in the top three. I should say that one of the really important elements of the controversy that we haven't really touched on is the fact that it's often regarded as the first mass globalisation of Islam in terms of popular media. So there are protests around the world in many, many different countries in India and Pakistan and Indonesia and Bradford and Bolton. Uh, you know, there were bombings of books, bookshops in New York and Berkeley. And we tend to forget that. And it was just this like mass mobilisation of protest against the satanic verses. And even to this day, there are still resonances. Rushdie still courts controversy. When he was knighted in 2007, there were protests against that, saying that he didn't deserve it for the very reason that he had insulted Islam. In 2012, at the Jaipur Literary Festival, um, a number of writers, including Harry Kunzer and Amitava Ghosh, um, tried to read out some of Rushdie's works. He famously was supposed to appear at the Literary Festival that year and there was a death threat against him, so he didn't. And then when these authors read out his work, they were asked to leave. So even in 2012, um, he still courts great controversy. He's an essayist and columnist. I think to not include satanic verses in the top three of books that have been censored will be to ignore his ongoing importance to those discussions. With Sherry Deckard, Joel Quirty, and Teresa Delacry. Salmon's latest publication, Joseph Anton, a memoir, is a fascinating reflection on the price of courage. It's published by Random House, and you can get a copy for in and around 12 euros. Okay, well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, Talking Books will be meeting with best selling American writer Daniel J. Levitin, whose books include The Organized Mind, This Is Your Brain on Music and The World in Six Songs. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Paul Murnock on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this evening's show with a salute to the Persian poet and mystic Hafiz, who wrote, Light will one day split you open. Good night. Six to one oh eight.